Welcome to Pivot the Podcast, exploring career twists and turns with me, Laura Oldfield. Hi, it's Laura and welcome to another episode of Pivot the Podcast. It's such a delight recording these introductions, although this one I'm going to have to edit quite carefully because I'm speaking quietly knowing that my toddler is directly above me sleeping with a really horrible cough. I'm recording this at the beginning of February 2024 and I don't know what's going on in your part of the world but here it just seems to be one lot of germs after another. Tonsillitis for me, coughs and fevers for the others but we're nearly there and just as the snowdrops are starting to burst through the earth I feel like my energy is just slowly starting to burst through. It was such a joy to talk to Susie about energy Emotional bankruptcy is a phrase that comes up quite a lot in this podcast, something that Susie describes herself as having experienced. For those of you who don't know Susie yet online, you are really missing out. She's someone I always turn to when I need boost. And her whole mission is about finding those micro moments of care so that we're not always putting ourselves to the bottom of the pile. Perhaps you're listening to that thinking it all sounds terribly woolly a little bit naive, perhaps. But Susie is pucker. But Susie is a woman who knows her stuff. She's a chartered psychologist. She is a woman who has really understood how the mind and body work, that link between them. And recording this podcast with her has been a long-held ambition of mine. She taught me so much in the 45 minutes or so that we spend talking together, and I know she'll do the same for you. She's also incredibly warm and has the most gorgeous Australian accent, which I tried not to fawn over. One of the other things that Susie and I spoke about was how we use the internet in a really positive way to find clients, to connect with our clients, to connect with our audience. And I wanted to mention a workshop that I'm running for free just about that very thing. It's so reassuring, isn't it, when you're about to launch something new and then you get confirmation from various different platforms or people that you're doing the right thing. Hearing Susie talk to me in this episode about how she just kept showing up, providing the information that she thought her clients needed to hear in a really loving and helpful way. She was essentially talking about the message that I'm wanting to get through in my workshop, that if you are running a business, providing a service, wanting to get more clients, customers, students, performances, you do need to keep showing up. It doesn't have to be every day, but it needs to be done in a way that feels right for you, where you're not afraid of asking for a sale. And so with that in mind, I would absolutely love it if you came along to my free workshop. It's on Thursday the 22nd of February at 1pm UK GMT. There will be a time-limited replay and it's called The Four Steps to Intuitive Organised Marketing or storytelling as I like to call it. You can tell that I love to tell a story and hear other people's stories. It's completely free. I am launching a paid course shortly after that, but trust me, you don't need to come to this workshop thinking I'm going to sell to you, because trust me, I'm not. I hate it when people do that. One final thing before I introduce you to the absolute treat that is Susie. It is so exciting to see the five-star reviews coming in. I'm going to have to add up how many we've got. I'll let you know next episode. But if you felt like subscribing, sharing this with your friends, leaving a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Substack, wherever you get your podcasts, you know it would mean the world. It has been so delightful to read and see from your comments how much you're loving hearing from these amazing people. I can't tell you what a privilege it is. And with that in mind, I think it's time we get on and hear from Susie, don't you? This is Susie Redding. For season one, episode five, and February 2024, Pivot the Podcast. Welcome to Pivot the Podcast with me, Laura Oldfield, and I am thrilled and giddy with excitement uh, to welcome onto today's podcast Susie Redding, author, chartered psychologist, and the kind of person you want in your corner. If you are looking for a place on the internet to get comfort, to get solace, to get reinsurance and inspiration, look no further than Susie Redding. It is a delight to have you here. Susie, for those of us that don't know you, please, could you introduce yourself to Pivot the Podcast? What a glorious warm welcome, Laura. Thank you, darling. Thank you. 
I think you've summed it up beautifully. So I'm a chartered psychologist. Uh, I'm an author. I've written extensively around um, self-care, how we can nourish ourselves. Um, In terms of qualifications, I'm a yoga teacher. I also spent a decade working as a personal trainer. And those different modalities I still draw on now as a psychologist to support people through stress, loss and change, but also more from a coaching perspective in terms of helping people manage their energy and their emotions um, and integrate healthy habits. But all of that learning aside, I would say hands on heart, it's it's the lived experience of becoming a mum while losing my dad to motor neuron disease that really set me on this path of encouraging people to advocate for themselves and come back to back to nourishing self which is a real challenge in the culture that we live in and that as you say that challenge that very real challenge of going nourishing myself is as important as nourishing others you talk about your lived experience would you mind telling us a bit more about the experience that has got you to this point, because I may be wrong, but I suspect that that hasn't always been a priority for you or something that you have seen as essential. Oh, absolutely. Now, I, I'd say that I've always had a healthy relationship with nourishing practices. Yeah. So um, I've always taken good care of myself. When I became a mum, I knew it was important to do it, but my goodness. The things that I would do to nurture myself before becoming a mum were either completely inaccessible or just didn't even hit the sides of what I needed in that that new chapter of life. And of course, you know, we become parents and um, we have to subjugate our needs to a certain extent, Mm. right? You know, your your child wakes in the middle of the night. You can't just roll over and go, I don't fancy that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you've got to lead to attention, right? But um, it's that I learned really, really hard and fast that if, if I didn't do enough to sustain myself, that I, I couldn't actually be there. And it was, mm. you know, I'm talking, this is survival mode stuff. You know, what I experienced was the best way that I can describe that is energetic bankruptcy. I mean, I literally mm. felt like I had nothing left in the tank. Um, and so... You know, little by little, it was developing a whole new toolkit um, of a very soothing, simple, bite-sized, you know, do this breathing practice for 30 seconds, use this mantra in the midst of all the rest of it. Yeah, it's these tiny little things that have a real cumulative power. But I would say that it's sort of more as I've been learning how to advocate for my kids I've realized that they're looking to me to, I've got to model those skills. And this is not just advocating for them. I also have to advocate for myself so that they understand, you know, this is how we raise compassionate, empathetic children, isn't it? Where they are aware that mommy's also a human being and and this person has needs and, and we need to work together as a team. So this is, it's ever evolving. It's a work in progress and I'm still making fabulous mistakes and learning every day. (laughs) So um, paint a picture me. What was Susie the 25-year-old like? How was she spending her days? How would she have described herself? Do you think you even know now looking back? What were you like? I have to think hard about that. We're talking, (laughs) this is more than 20 years ago, my sweet. Um, So mid-20s, I'd... I'm, I can't even remember when I moved to the UK. I can't remember how old I was. But throughout my 20s, I was working as a personal trainer. I was going to lots of yoga classes. I was immersed in like what traditional health and well-being looks like, you know, from eating well and working out. And I had stacks of time to be able to invest in my health because, you know, one, it was part of my business. Yeah. I and mean, I was going for runs with clients as well as, you know, but that, that was, yeah, that pretty much determined the shape of my day. Very, very and different so, in my 30s and 40s, my goodness. I was going to yeah. say, because in your 20s, as you say, that's, that lifestyle is something that you were able to 
really in, incorporate as part of your whole brand as a personal trainer and as a business owner who's wanting to represent these values of health and well-being, as you say, in these more traditional um, approaches. And perhaps we can talk about how that then has changed for you mm-hmm. with the time that you have and the different responsibilities that you have. And I wonder if that sudden pivot into parenthood, which, you know, we've, we've spoken about still, I think, not enough. Um, that sudden earth-shattering change that can come. Did you have many examples around you of new parents, of people who were showing you what this change could look like? And and when you did become a, a mum, and as you say, you reached that point of emotional bankruptcy, was that something that you were expecting at all? No. I thought I was going to be really good at it, Laura. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Not so much. I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm a bit of a mother hen, so I've always yep. been tending and and you know professionally I was professional caregiver encourager nurturer right and I couldn't wait I couldn't wait to start a family but um I'm the youngest in in my family my brothers are 10 years older than me and they're twins um lots of cousins but still I I was one of the youngest and I can remember there was there was one other personal trainer that I was working with in London he was the first to get married and he was the first to have a child. And my goodness, I can remember seeing him come in to the gym at like six o'clock in the morning. He, he, he had to wear glasses because his eyes were so tired and bloodshot that he couldn't put his contact lenses in. And I was like, whoa, mate, what's wrong with you? <laughs> that should have been, uh, you know, a suggestion of maybe I'm not going to nail this. But my goodness. So, yes, I'm a nurturer. But you know what else? I really like order. I like mm-hmm. control. I like autonomy. So you can imagine just how much I struggled with the early stages of, of um, raising a baby. Wow. But no, I, I really didn't. And I can distinctly remember a number of occasions where I attempted to reach out to people around me that I thought would be receptive and talk honestly about motherhood. Now, my eldest is 13. This is not that long ago. No. Um, And I can remember saying, oh, you know, enjoy every moment. And in in a sort of like, you know, true gritted teeth. And yet it wasn't met with, of course, sweetie, you don't have to enjoy every moment. Yeah. And I can can remember when I said something in in passing to a woman in a grocery store. My daughter was kicking off. I'd tried every trick in the book to keep her happy during this bloody grocery shop. And this woman just passed me by and she just caught my eye and she sort of gave me a little smile. And I thought, in that moment, I, I could maybe make light of this. And I, and, I, and I did. I made exactly that joke. I said, well, I'm enjoying every, every minute. And she literally, she spat back at me. I enjoyed every minute with mine. And I just thought, oh, my God, I wanted the earth to oh. swallow me up. It was, it was so, I felt so much shame. I mean, who, who knows what tragedy has befallen that woman you know, maybe yeah. something horrendous yeah. has happened. But also by virtue of, you know, we forget, don't we? If we didn't forget, we wouldn't have more than one child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the dialogue has changed enormously, hasn't it? I think so. And I think I definitely want to talk to you today about how you have been able to use the internet to be one of our chief advocates online for what you're talking about there, which is that both compassion for others and also that self-compassion. And that comes through so clearly in in the work that you've created online and in your books. I suppose what really interests me as well is knowing that you're at this point of, as you say, emotional bankruptcy. Having children is so discombobulating. And yet I don't know if this was the case for you, but certainly it was the case for me and many of the other mothers that I work with and my friends Part of me felt like it just was shattered and suffocated. And another part of my brain went, oh, hello, what else could you do? Suddenly there was a little voice in the back of my head saying, maybe there's a little superwoman part of you that you haven't quite turned on yet. Took a while to come, but suddenly there was a slight itchiness for something more. And I don't know if that's what happened for you going from the point of, as you say, being a personal trainer, working in the wellness industry to going, oh, maybe there's another way that I'm going to look at this. When did that kind of itch for going, how can I explore something else in this area come for you? I would definitely say it was, it was part of my grief journey. Yeah. I'd say that um, 
losing my dad in, in the way that we did, there was never a diagnosis for dad. So he had a breathing really? failure when, um, when I was 40 weeks pregnant, he had a breathing failure, rushed him to hospital. We were told it was unlikely that he would make it, but he did. He survived for 15 months after that, but he was never able to breathe on his own while he slept. Um, and it was, you know, it was really, it was a very harrowing time. But I would say that in that, that collision of life events and sort of this sort of crystallization of purpose, you know, it really felt mm. like up until that point, I'd worked with people. It was almost like therapy by stealth. Yeah. So even though okay. I had a, a master's degree in psychology, I still wasn't calling myself a psychologist. I was practicing. I was working as a personal trainer or a yoga teacher or a health coach. It was, it was earning my stripes as a human being that allowed me to say, no, no, I'm going to hang my shingle on the door and I'm going to work in a therapeutic context. And I'll draw together all of these other skills that I've learned in these various settings. But that's where I was like, no, I, now I know that if I can navigate this experience for myself as a human being, I, I now have the confidence and the skill set to be able to hold someone else's hands through that. And I really felt like I probably would have got to that point at yeah. some point, but it was the life experience. And, and obviously it wasn't just the grief journey. It was also the motherhood journey, mm. stepping into that new role and that new identity and all of the new understandings and insight that comes with that, that just, I felt like it had just pressed fast forward. And I was like, I was ready to work with people in, in an entirely different way and a much more authentic and meaningful way. It's, it's extraordinary how there was a film, I can't remember what it was called now, and that's very frustrating. It was a film with Reese Witherspoon and she's essentially spending her life living in black and white. And one day she sees what it's like to live in the full kaleidoscope of colour and the bizarre and unhelpful but ultimately helpful thing about grief sometimes I feel is it's like suddenly life is sometimes in neon colours, you know, and all we want to do is turn that off and go back to the soothing of the black and white. But at the same time, sometimes the the sheer kind of volcanic force of grief sometimes does force out of us, as you say, on fast forward, things that were always there but we weren't expecting we weren't expected to come out. I remember when my uncle very suddenly died. I was on a school trip. I used to be a full-time teacher and I was taking a hundred uh, year eight boys around Bodium Castle in Kent for anyone who wants to visit. It's a lovely day out. I suddenly had a phone call saying your uncle's had a stroke. He was only in his fifties and, and it looks like he's not going to make it. And I do remember very soon after that going, why on earth am I waiting to to have children? What what what's what's the thing that I'm going to wait for that's the right moment? And these personal realizations that grief can bring, we wish, don't we, that we didn't have to have the grief to make us have them. But you're absolutely right. It's the fast forwarding that suddenly takes over and, and forces us to examine life in a, in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. But with your own grief journey, as, as you describe it, were you in the UK and your father over in Australia? And no, how were you? How I was this all being navigated? So okay. we moved we moved back to Australia for what I thought was, you know start a family in Sydney, that's where it'll be much easier because I'll be close oh, to my parents. Okay. That didn't quite turn out to be the case, but I'm so glad no. we were there. We had that last chapter with my dad. Yeah. Um, we moved back yeah. to the UK five years later um, okay. and that was to be with my father-in-law who was in end stage heart failure. And after we'd made the decision to move back here, I'd fallen pregnant. So it was, I was 12 weeks pregnant when we moved back to the UK. And oh my goodness! it was a very similar set of circumstances the second time around. Um, thankfully, my father-in-law got to meet our, our little Ted. So I'm oh, pleased that we moved back. Good. We got here in time. But I would say even though there was a lot of mirroring, it was a vastly different experience because I knew that I had to be really resolute, really diligent in my nourishing practices. Otherwise, I, I well no one wants to experience energetic bankruptcy twice. So a lot of that guilt had fallen away of prioritizing myself. So it was a, yeah, a very, very different experience. I think also as part of that, um, you know, coming into a new identity or, 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 or times when life is really squeezing you, I think the thing that catapulted me in that pivot 
was that life was so hard, I couldn't afford to put, in, put any more shit on my shoulders. Yeah, and it was like the first time in my life where I really felt like I'm, I have to get out of my way here. So a lot of the self-imposed limitations, a lot of the, the punitive self-talk, a lot of the self-doubt, it was just like, I haven't got time for that. I haven't got energy for that. I've got to crack on here. And I think that, that was part of the turning point. Okay. And so I think for anyone listening to this who is in that state of unbelievable depletion and the feeling that resources are just an absolute zero, you say it took you that point to go, there is, there is no time, there is no alternative. It's either this or I stay in that. How did you manage to claw your way from that point to going, uh-uh, this isn't for me anymore. I have to change it now. Were there first steps? Do you remember? Was it a gradual excruciating experience for you? Tell me more about that. I just remember feeling completely bereft and knowing that if I was going to continue to deny myself, that I, it just, it, it wasn't an option. It was like, yeah. go down that path where I can't, I can't be here. I can't mother my sweet little girl or do things differently. There was, it was almost like there was no choice. And the doing things differently meant using all the kind coaxing words. It meant okay. asking for help. It meant, yeah. can we get a takeout? It meant, yeah. I'm going to lie down and be really smart. If my daughter's asleep, I'm not going to sit and watch Days of Our Lives. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to roll out my yoga mat and have a sleep on it for as long yeah. as she's asleep. And I did that. Yeah. Um, for months on end, you know, it was just tiny little shifts. It wasn't like, oh, now I'm going to go and do this glorious thing. It was, it was, yes. it was where self-compassion, self-kindness, coaxing, gentleness, tenderness kicked in because there was no alternative. It, it had to be that. And it mm. worked. That This is the thing, like one tiny little, you know, one kind word can create a beautiful upward spiral, just like, you know, keeping criticism on yourself creates a downward spiral where, you know, it just makes it harder to get through. It's harder to make a positive decision. It's harder to invest in yourself. Ah, oh, we're in a deep rut. But one, one kind act, one tender act, even if you don't feel like, you know, you're deserving of it, the deserving comes, the feeling of deserving comes from that tiny little action. So don't let that be a barrier. Don't wait to feel like you're worthy of it. Don't wait to feel like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be anything grand or elaborate. It mm. can be gently, tenderly cupping your chin in your hands, cradling your face and just saying, sweetie, this is tough. Mm. Of course you're mm. finding it tough. Any human being would and that's okay. It gently does it. I think people forget the power of a virtuous circle and I think there's a, a misconception that in order to start um, exploring these tender, gentle micro practices that we have to be in a particular state of mind or that we have to be ready or that we have to kind of make an announcement. Today, I choose to start this journey of kindness towards myself. And actually, you can still feel like shit and start that journey today. You can still say, this is all shit, but do you know what? I'm going to choose to try that today and tomorrow and the next day and maybe change will come about. And so is that what you started to notice in yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. Just mm. one little micro practice. And I was, I was lucky that I was working with um, a postnatal depression counsellor. And I don't know whether it was PND. Yeah. From my perspective, it could have been complex grief. It could have just been depletion, exhaustion. Yeah. But in partnership with her, you know, we were reflecting on what were the kind of things that I used to do. And how could I reclaim that in a different form? So that's where, you know, yoga was such a huge part of my toolkit previously. But, you know, the sort of doing a sun salute or a warrior pose, it was like, oh, forget it. Like, yeah. not in your nelly. Yeah. I set myself up in a restorative yoga pose with cushions, like the adult version of a fort, you know. <laughs> yeah, every blanket known to man. And I would swaddle myself. And, you know, if I dropped off to sleep, great. If I didn't, it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, that's it's no funny you give that example because I've had tonsillitis. My daughter's been offered suspected tonsillitis. And um, I, 
<laughs> I said to her, what are you doing? She said, mommy, I'm going to make myself a fort to rest in. And I just thought, how amazing that you are listening to yourself and what you need. And that's exactly what she did. And she took her book and she made herself a little fort. And then her 19-month-old brother knocked it down. But, you know, it was just the most <laughs> gorgeous moment of going, oh, look at you doing that now. And um, it's so interesting what you said about kind of coming full circle now to 13 years later and now advocating for your own children that so often when we look to them and their natural impulses for how they're going to naturally self-care, there's so much that they do that we should pay attention to because they're oh, so often spot on in their instincts. Um, and so I'd love to learn more about how you, as you say, you've been on this abhorrent experience with your father, you know, I, I, when people say, I can't imagine it, it's not helpful. I can only imagine that that must have been absolutely unimaginably horrendous for you, but you're taking these micro steps, these mini moments of nurturing, trying to embody regularly these practices that ultimately, you know, are going to help you. And then what happens? Because you've been this personal trainer you're dealing with grief. The grief doesn't stop. It never stops. We know that, but life has carried on. So what happens next in Susie's life? Do you know, I was feeling a resurgence of energy. Um, mm. my, my daughter was around two at that point. Okay. So I was able to leave her with my mom and, you know, nip off and, and go and do a few hours of work here and there. And for me, the beautiful stepping stone to working therapeutically as a psychologist, moving from mm you know, the PT side of things is I took clients for walk and talk sessions in Sydney. Oh, and it lovely. Was absolutely gorgeous. I loved that we could still, you know, sometimes we'd incorporate a little bit of yoga, but it was, it was like a way of embodying a lot of the toolkit that I talk about in terms of mindfulness and compassion. But it also, it didn't feel like therapy as such. Mm. And a lot of people feel much more comfortable with that approach to talking therapy. So that, that was an interesting stepping stone. And I think that can be useful in terms of how do we create change? It doesn't always have to be, I'm doing A or I'm doing B. Sometimes there can be little intermediary steps that allow us to move in a different direction. It doesn't yeah. have to be, you know, a, a, a complete 180 pivot, but I guess, um, another change was that we would move back to the UK. Again, I was in this state of I've got to build a new business. I'm about to have yeah. a baby. What the hell do I do? So when I moved here, it was like, what is the thing that is easiest to communicate? What, what is it that it says on the tin that I could probably sustain with having a young family? And I, that's where I fell back on teaching yoga. So everyone knows what that yeah. is. You know, it was yeah. just, yeah, that was simple. Um, but also I started writing. And it's funny actually how things work out. So when I was doing the walk and talk sessions, the one thing that bugs me about that delivery of, of therapy is that it doesn't lend itself to people taking notes. Yeah. Right. So when you're normally in a coaching or a counseling session, you jot down the insights, you jot down what's important to you, what you need to remember. But when you're on the hearth like that, it's not easy. So as a result, I used to write um, articles or blogs for my clients around salient themes that we would, that, that a lot of people would be experiencing or around developing particular skills like gratitude or, or savoring, or, you know, looking at things like post-traumatic growth. Actually, that's where my first book came from, a collection of those blog posts. So you never know what you're building, right? And sometimes mm. in the midst of it, you're like, oh, I'm just creating this thing. But in actual fact, further down the track, that, that, that little thing that you did here, that might actually turn into something really significant. So I'm, there's, there's something in that. <laughs> My last guest, Lawrence, was saying um, he's a very successful podcast creator and audio drama creator. He writes fiction um, and creates audio dramas as a result. And he was saying how um, people come to him and say, I, I want to make a podcast and I want to make money from it. How do I do it? And he says, well, you don't start there. You start with wanting to create something. You want to create because you want to create and because you feel that you have a, a mission to do so or a purpose to do so or a vision to do so. And you know what? What might then happen is you create something so brilliant that other people start going, this is really good. And then it turns into a scalable product and then it turns into something that you can monetize. 
But actually, if we start the creative process with, right, okay, so I want to do this to make money. Yeah, of course, we're saying ultimately, I'm not saying a thing I want to do is going to be a hobby. Otherwise, it's a hobby. It's not a business. But as you say, this part of your work wasn't designed with, this will be a major income stream for me. And yet now it's such a big part of you and your business and your brand, all the books. So how did the books come about? Because I'm fascinated with this. Were you approached? Did you do the approaching? How did it work to go from, I've got an online set of writing here to look at this book, this thing you can hold in your hands? It was a bit of both. So when nice. I had Ted, I I knew that I, I needed I needed something that would allow me to be present with him that I could still do you know, that I could still make a financial contribution and I thought writing is yep. it. And, and Laura, that's what I always wanted to do. I mm. always wanted to be a writer. And I think this is a useful little, well, this is a useful, fabulous, epic failure to share. So excellent. <laughs> I worked my ass off through high school and I got yep. a really good grade and I still missed out on the communications degree that I wanted to do by point two of a mark. And it was like, oh my God, this is, this was devastating. Oh. I put yep. all my eggs in that basket. Thankfully, my very wise older brother said to me, you know that you can write. You don't need to do the communications degree to be a writer. Go and study something that you can write about. And I'd, I'd always known that psychology was an interest. So I went and did a, a, a bachelor of psychology. 20 years later, I've written nine books about mm. psychology so he was spot on but you know what well done sometimes these failures we feel like they're a dead end but yep. actually they're a redirect and I and I hope that can be useful so but there there's always been that desire to write I'd always been yep. writing throughout my whole career to support my clients um, but that book very much came about by okay how can I make some money here as a mum and so I had my manuscript I'd secured an agent, which I didn't even realize was a huge triumph. I bought that mm. um, artists, and, artists and Writers Handbook that comes out oh, yes. once a year. Yeah, and yeah, I identified yeah. a top five and I contacted them and, and one of them had said yes. Amazing. But it, as it turns out, so my agent was representing me. She was sending out the proposal. We were getting lots of no's. And at the cool. time, self-care wasn't really a thing. And my hmm. agent was saying to me, can we call it mindfulness? I'm like, no, I promise you self-care is a thing. We need to stick with it. But as it turns out, through connections, people opening doors, someone connected me with a journalist who was writing a piece about self-care. I was able to contribute some tips. My publisher saw that piece, got in touch with me directly and the rest is history. So it oh. was, it was such an amazing opportunity, but it's, it all came about by sticking to my guns and saying, no, this thing, this is, this is legitimate. I know it's, there's some backlash. People are questioning whether it's just a fad, but it's, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, a lot of it's timing, you know, it's people opening doors, people being supportive, but also being brave and saying out loud, I'm available, let me contribute, you know, putting your hand up and saying yes to opportunities. And I do suspect that, as you say, that that secondary driver, if you like, of going, yes, I now have two children, I want to be around for my children, but I also really want to do this for me. That's quite a potent mix of going, these are my circumstances and they're not going to change. And actually, I don't want them to change. But at the same time, I'm bloody good and I deserve to do this. And if I'm not going to do this now, when on earth am I going to do it? And I sense that that's what was happening with you in that that first book deal. How did it feel when you saw the book for the first time? It's still a bucket list moment. And it's mm. really funny. You know, when I read that book back now, I'm kind of like, there's a lot of self-disclosure in that book. And I guess I really? kind of wrote it almost with a sense of, I forgot that anyone else was going to read it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. But I'm glad I went there. I mean, it, it, it's got a narrative thread for a reason. And I think that's what resonates with a lot of people in that I do share that very gritty, real experience of becoming a mum while, while, while grieving. But um 
Yeah, that, I haven't that's read a your first very book. treasured moment. Oh, I'm going to have to. I really, I'm going to have to go and look it up because I haven't read your first book. I've read, I've read lots of others, but I haven't read that first one. And um, can I ask you, because I, being in the coaching and mentoring world, which is such a dodgy world in lots of ways, the world self, the world, the word self-care mm-hmm. is exploited often, is celebrated at other times. Mm-hmm. The whole concept is something that, um, is still, I think, questioned. And I would love to know from somebody whom I respect so wholeheartedly and who I think embodies all the best things about what self-care is, what is self-care to you, Susie? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. And I really want to stick up for this phrase, right? Me too. Like you say, it's, you know, I hear people say, oh, if you don't, like self-care, let's call it something else. Let's call it energy management. Let's call it this. No, let's call it (laughs) self-care because it is lovingly tending to self. And we're immersed in a culture that celebrates selflessness. In fact, it rams selflessness down our throats and it demonizes selfishness. So I feel so passionately about us reclaiming the right to self and self-care from my perspective is tending to our health. It's nourishing ourselves mentally, emotionally, energetically, physically. That's what self-care is. And so when you get those going, yeah, but you know, if you're doing self-care, what about all the problems in the world and you should be thinking of others and you know, there's so there's so much that's going on. How how can you possibly allow yourself to be nourishing yourself isn't that awfully indulgent mm-hmm. I mean for one thing I would say piss off to them but you <laughs> would have a more articulate and adult response to that I'm sure and what would that response be okay so there there are a couple of things we need to make a distinction between self-advocacy and selfishness okay Absolutely. so the question that I would ask for so many women when you feel selfish what is it that you're doing right? For most women, this is what I hear. They've spent their entire day tending to the needs of others. They've Mm. literally got 10 minutes to relax and unwind and they feel bad about it. I'm being selfish. That's not selfish, right? (laughs) The balance of energy and effort and care is not skewed in terms of you. There's nothing wrong with you also getting a look in. Yeah. But from, from my perspective, and this is what energetic bankruptcy taught me, I am used to no one. I'm good for nothing if I am depleted. My depletion serves no one. Our nourishment serves as a way of resourcing us to be able to take values-led action. So if we want to be of service to other people, please allow some of that nourishment to be turned inwards because otherwise we've got nothing left. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, there are times in our lives where we want to save the whole world. But actually, we've been taught that it's selfish to even say that women can have any kind of voice for themselves at all. You know, that's what we should be told. We should just be nice and quiet and get in our box. And I think that the wonderful self-care revolution has taught women to say, do you know what? Actually, I do matter as well. And it's not being indulgent to say that. It's brilliant. And I think it is teaching the next generation to see those values, regardless of gender and regardless of background. But I would hope is encouraging a discourse about what that equality of self-care can look like. I really hope. And I think that people like you are doing that so brilliantly. And it leads me on to actually how you have taken social media, something that is so often demonized, and have created something absolutely beautiful and precious on the internet. So can you tell us a bit how you use, I'm, I'm thinking most obviously of Instagram and how you've taken that platform and created something really rather special. It's a funny thing. I started my Instagram account and I'll be honest with you, that is the only social media platform that I invest in because I just, I haven't got the capacity to dabble elsewhere. It's like, that if I'm going to so have conversations, so many. 
it's just not enough time in the day. I haven't got the brain space, the head space. Another open tab, I would explode. So yep. Instagram is where it's at. I actually started that account as a savoring album with photos of my kids. Oh, yeah. There are none of those there anymore. They're long since no. gone. No. But it very quickly became a space for me to, um, again, support my clients. So if there was something that it started as like, here's a little note to self, maybe this will land for you too. And then as my practice has grown and, and um, my psychological practice and, and, and more, and pe- more and more people have joined my community, I'm acutely aware that not everyone can afford one-to-one therapy, counseling, coaching. So for me, I feel like that's my way of giving back and it's, yep. it's a way that I can be a service. And I just, I, I love the creativity of it. You know, for me, it's like, yeah. here's what I'm thinking about today. What do we think of this? Can we have a dialogue yeah. around this? And I'm actually learning as much as, as I would suggest that I'm, I'm, I'm putting out there because I'm, it's, it's, it's a co-creation and it comes from community. It's a beautiful thing. It's so refreshing to hear that. I, uh, some of my values, I'm not sure what yours are, Susie, though I can have a good guess. But some of my values as a, as a business owner are that I just love, and as a teacher and a singer and everything, I love learning, I love listening, and I love creating. And people, not everyone, but many people demonize Instagram. You know, I'm never being seen by the algorithm and it's demanding so much of me. And yes, of course, we've all had the frustration of going, this is really good and nobody's seen it. And that's annoying. But ultimately, the community, the opportunity for community and the opportunity for creation mm. is just wildly exciting, I think. And I love seeing what you've done. But how does it feel for you to know that? I think I messaged you the other day and said, I'm feeling really stressed. And you'd put a little... um you know, one minute video and you were explaining about how to do this specific, very simple, but wildly effective technique. I think it was using the pads of my thumbs, putting them in a certain place on my head, breathing and just allowing myself to come back to the present moment and to to feel the physical manifestation of the, the overwhelm dissipating. How does it feel to know that there are thousands of people who are going, okay, I'm going to try that. Okay, I just need to try that. It is, it's mad. It's mad. <laughs> it, but it's such a tonic. And I regularly say this to people who, who send me messages saying, that really got me through. It's like, well, we sustain each mm. other. That's yeah. what we're doing here. We're lifting each other up. It's that shared humanity that I experienced through those exchanges is yeah. so galvanizing. It's so energizing. I, I love my time there and I, I feel like I get just as much back as I give out. Yeah. What do your kids think of it? Because I would imagine, you know, you've got, you say you've got a 13 year old, so you're navigating the excitement of the online world for her and with her and how she's seeing herself online and, you know, maybe how that um, matches up or doesn't with how she sees herself in real life. What do they think of, of mummy's online presence? It's, it's a funny thing. Um, we're really careful in terms of our yep. children's online life. Um, yep. I encourage Charlotte to make these amazing videos, but she doesn't share that online. She shares that privately with friends. Mm. So that is actually quite difficult to navigate because it's like, well, this is part of my career. She sees me posting stuff. And do you know what? She's been my videographer on many uh. an occasion. She, and she edits stuff for me, but she doesn't express herself through social media yet. But she knows why, and this is a, it's a constant dialogue, isn't it, as parents yeah. working out what's right for our little family unit. Um, it's a funny thing. You know, when we go into town, there was someone that stopped me saying that they connected with me through Instagram and the kids just thought it was hilarious. But it's just, <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is funny. I mean, again, like with that first book, I forgot that anyone was really going to read it. And even with these yeah. posts, I put stuff up and, People stop me in the street because obviously, you know, I'm out and about on the canal, all my little walking videos by the canal. Long yeah, yeah. Of course I'm going to bump into people locally that see those things. But it still takes me by surprise. But the fact is I'm just pitching up. I'm just sharing my stuff. And it, I, it is odd. It's a funny thing, Laura. It's, but it's also a beautiful thing and I feel very blessed. 
And actually, it's a wonderful thing to be, you know, I think if we if we were to suppose the narrative of online is bad, offline is good, how, I mean, that's just so binary and and so unhelpful. Our children and us, there are so many benefits to things like YouTube and Instagram, and they're going to be using them. So what better way of modeling? This is a really healthy relationship with an online platform. And this is this is the good that it can do. I would have thought you should feel you should be celebrating yourself and modeling a really healthy way of using this online space um, and what wonderful discussions it must lead to in your home. I think it's brilliant. But I suppose um, with that online, offline world, now, as you say, you've been doing this for quite a while now and you've published how many books? Is it eight books? Eight. Yes, eight books and a deck of cards. Yeah. <gasps> So how are you finding that balance now between obviously you've got your one-to-one -one therapeutic work, you've got your space online, this whole community, um, you've got your books. How does that, all those different facets, how do they come together and how do you now find that your time is spent as as a business owner, as a psychologist, as an author? What, what does life look like for you now today? To be honest with you, every week is different and it's mm -hmm. been a very interesting last couple of years. Okay. Um, so with the pandemic, a lot of my work went online and actually yeah. a lot of it stayed online. Mm. So I divide my time between writing books, um, doing, still do some walk and talks in the beautiful yep. Ashridge forest nearby. Um, oh, I do you. zoom coaching and counseling and I also do, um, corporate talks, but most of that okay. is still online. So yeah. it's still, it's still all of those things. But it, it sort of parts of it expand and contract with with where uh, with where interest lies. And I think this is, you know, I in in some respects I sort of admire people who are able to, that's my niche, that's what I'm doing. But for me, it's kind of like I've had to evolve lots of different things because market needs are constantly changing. Like at the beginning of the yeah. pandemic, the corporate talks just went through the roof. And then last year, there was such a massive contraction to the point where, um, you know, it was, I was thinking, is, am I going to get work here again? This is crazy. And then yeah. this year already, it's really picked up again. So it's interesting, it's a constant expansion and contraction and just being creative and thinking, okay, so how can I, how can I repurpose this? Or it's, I'm still winging it, my love. I'm still working yeah. it out as I go along, but I guess the core, there, there are, there are core elements. There are the threads that weave it all together. Um, and it's, and it's, it's about resourcing people and empowering people with, with nourishing skills and practices and whatever shape that takes I'm here. That's great. But it's, it's sometimes it's a matter of, we have to get resourceful and creatives in finding new ways to. It's also deeply it satisfying very satisfying to hear you use the word you've had to be creative I think I'm on a mission in 2024 to try and reclaim the word of what does being creative mean and I honestly think if you own a business you're creative because you're having to look around and going oh so now not this how do I how do I rethink this how do I rework this how do I and it's so reassuring to hear that that you have had to do that as a business owner. But at the same time, in all the years I've known you online, that amazing consistency of message has remained the same. And so I suppose if I hadn't come across you before today and I'm listening to this podcast now, what would be the message that you would want to send out, I guess, to the, you know, the, the woman who's doing the washing up, having just put the kids down and she knows she's got to get on and log on online to finish that piece of work because that's her life, because that is 2024 20, life for so many people. What would be the message that you would want to give her as she's listening right now? Oh, I'd love to give her a big hug and say, yes. sweetheart, your needs, your feelings, your desires and your dreams and your hopes matter too. <sighs> and I take a big, deep breath out and acknowledge that myself. <laughs> um, Susie, it has been joyful to listen to you um, and I want to carry on listening to you but I'm going to ask you one more question that I ask all of my guests which is are there any pivots that you have yet to take but that are nagging away in the back of your mind I know that there was yep. the nag to write absolutely are there any others this is not a pivot in terms of like a mode mm. it's a pivot in terms of 
I need to get a lot deeper. So I've written, written nine books around how we can nourish ourselves. But the really big, 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 big fundamental roadblock that a lot of us have to actually doing those things is still in place and that's what I need to tackle next. So that's, that's where I'm going next, getting even deeper, looking at oh um, my goodness. how we can reclaim the right to self. There it is. <laughs> She's laying it out there, everyone. There it is. Susie Redding is going to help us reclaim the right to self. Oh, my goodness. Tingles. I can't wait to see how that unfolds, and I will be watching along the way. Susie, thank you so much for joining me today on Pivot. It has been a true joy. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Just a pleasure to share the journey with you. Let's see what comes next, huh? <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Susie. Bye-bye. Bye, my love. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Isn't Susie incredible? If you've enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it, it would be so fantastic if you could leave a five-star review, subscribe, tell your friends about it. I'm so excited with where this podcast is going and it's only possible because of your wonderful support. It feels like we're creating a community. More on that soon. Um, stay tuned, as they used to say, for something on that in the future. In the meantime, here's one final reminder about my forthcoming workshop on the 22nd of February. You can find it at my website, lauraoldfield.com, and then it's marketing-workshop is the end of the URL. If you are looking for that, or just search it on my website. Come and make friends with me on Instagram. My handle is lauraoldfield underscore. You can drop me an email at hello at lauraoldfield.com or just get in touch via my Substack whichever medium works for you. Thanks once more to Susie. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in a fortnight. Please would you subscribe to Pivot the podcast. You can find us where you might expect like Apple and Spotify. Please would you subscribe to Pivot the podcast. Please would you subscribe today. Please would you subscribe to Pivot the podcast.